All right, so we're going to be in 1 Kings together this morning. Um, we have been going through this book together for, this is the ninth week. We'll be in chapter 14. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We'll end in chapter 18. Feels good when you cover some ground. I don't know how you feel, but I mean, it's not a competition or anything, but or a race to the finish. Y'all know me, but so there's a lot of history in this section, and I'm not going to read all of it. Obviously, uh, it's a lot to, to cover, uh, but I'm going to kind of breeze over it, give you an overview, and then we'll get into the uh, the, the story of Elijah. Um, as the main course this morning. Um, what you have there in chapter 14 is the, the end of Jeroboam's life. We've talked about him and Rehoboam quite a lot in the past few weeks. Jeroboam dies, and then we get this list of kings after that that, that reads kind of like an annotated ge- genealogy. It's just a, a list of kings, and both in Israel and Judah, and you have to kind of read slowly to figure out which you know, the north or the south we're talking about. Uh, but as you read through, it's just a list. And it's, it gets depressing. I mean, I'm just going to admit it as you read the list. Because all of them, except for one, Asa, is that they're just all terrible. And you get this repeated phrase over and over again that says, um, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord over and over and over again. And you also get this Pray this this statement a couple of times. He was the he he put everyone to shame that came before him. He was the most evil of everybody that came before. And then you get another one, and it turns out he's actually the most evil. And then you get another one, and it turns out oh he's act, each one of them is just upping the ante, generation after generation of king after king after king. Whether they last two months, two weeks, or thirty years, it doesn't matter. None of them seem to learn. They all seem to be in competition with the guy that came before in terms of how evil can I be. And it gets a little depressing. It feels a little bit like a hammer just pounding a nail. And you just, by the time you get to the end of the list with Ahab, it's a little bit depressing. You feel sort of like despondent. Did somebody get that door? Yeah, thanks. I'm already distracted this morning, so I'm going to... It won't be good. We'll go three hours, and I won't make one point if I'm too distracted. So, by the way, let's just start the timer. Nobody wants me running that long. All right, so so that's the thing. You get this feeling, and I encourage you to read it, not just skip it, because it is repetitive, but there's a point to that, I think. There's a reason for it, which is to give you this, help you to feel what they felt. Imagine living in Israel or Judah at that time. And one after another, after another, after another, you get your hopes up because they make promises. You know what that's like? We, we have leaders in this country that have made promises, and then each one disappoints. No matter what the promise is, they always disappoint. And so we can relate to this, but this is even more so because we at least supposedly don't have kings with that kind of authority and power to completely make your life miserable just because they want to or they think it's the best thing or it serves them the best. And this is what we see over and over again. The thing that makes all of them evil that the author points out is primarily that they're idolaters. Okay, that's the main thing that we see over and over again with the author. They're doing other stuff too. 
um, but it's the idolatry. And we also see the entrance of this, uh, th this theme of male prostitutes being involved in the worship of their false gods. Yeah, it gets weird. It gets weirder as we go. This is not the apex of how evil it gets, but this is pretty bad, okay? The list ends with King Ahab in Israel and introduces someone that's going to finally confront the madness, and that's Elijah. This is the bright spot. This is when things start to feel a little better, like maybe there's some hope, okay? But you've got to go through that section that's depressing first so that the bright spot makes more sense and you can see why it's such a big deal, right? So let's start here in terms of reading in 1 Kings 16, verse 30 to 33. It says, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's that phrase again, right? More than all who were before him. There's that phrase again. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He was the worst. He was the top of the heap of the worst of the worst. Okay? So Baal, you need to know, because it helps you understand the irony in this story. Baal is the king of rain or storms. He's the one that provides rain, provides storms. They had come up with this myth about Baal that when it rained, it was because he sent it. And when it didn't rain, it was because he had actually died for a season and he would resurrect and come back and provide rain. That's how they explain the dry seasons every year. They had this whole story connected to all these other gods that explained all of the, the, the way the climate worked, but they believed and worshipped Baal to get rain for their crops. You can understand in an agricultural society why this would be a big deal. So instead of asking God to send the rain, they would ask Baal. And Asherah, you might have seen that mentioned, Asherah was a fertility goddess that became associated with Baal through some of their stories. Asherah poles, you'll sometimes see mentioned where these poles, they, they called them trees, they were made to look like trees. And then they would do clumps of them to look like a little forest, and they would go there to worship the goddess Asherah. And that's where probably the male prostitutes were used to worship her and the fertility goddess. Weird stuff, right? So Jezebel comes into the story here, and she has brought this new god in, Baal. Baal has not been talked about until this point. And she puts Baal up alongside Asherah and alongside Yahweh, the true living God. So now we have three gods being worshipped in Israel. She is not content to have her husband build her a temple, which it says she does, for her own private worship. She's going to promote Baal worship to replace Yahweh. That's her goal. And she has come into the family, the king's family, and she is going to manipulate and control things to push Baal worship to the forefront and to push Yahweh out. That's her goal. It's not evident yet, but that is her goal. It's horrible. And it's disturbing. 
the things that go along with that kind of worship. So then we have Elijah come on the scene. Finally, somebody, somebody who will do the right thing. He raised, God raised up a prophet named Elijah to confront Jezebel. And Elijah's goal, you've got to remember this as you read, like his focus is on getting Baal out, getting him rooting Baal worship out and showing that God is the true God. Yahweh is the true God. And he's going to find a way to prove it. And that's the story. James 5.17 has an interesting thing to say about Elijah that we need to remember. It says, Elijah was, this is James 5.17 and 18. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. This is what's astounding about the story of Elijah, is that he is an ordinary man. He is not Jesus. He's not God. He's just like you and me, James says. There is no difference. And you're gonna, it's going to be hard to remember that, because Elijah does some stuff. Some, some amazing, mind-bending, mind-blowing stuff. Stuff that you can't imagine God doing through you. I'll just be honest. The world we live in, I think we're, we can, I can be confident in saying that about everybody in this room. The stuff Elijah does is hard to imagine. And what you're going to be tempted to do is to put him in some separate category that you're not in. He's over here. He's special. He's a prophet. So he's over here. And James is saying, no, no, no. He was just like you and me. The thing that made him special was he was a man of prayer. That's what's special about him. And that's what's special about you. It's not some special thing that is unique. I'm so glad James said that because I wouldn't see that otherwise. So let's keep that in mind as we go. So Elijah calls in. What you're going to see here with Elijah, and I'm just going to show you this morning, we'll do the Mount Carmel stuff next week, the, the big showdown, right? We'll do that next week. That gets its own sermon. But this morning what I want you to show you is the progression of where Elijah starts and how his faith builds through these experiences he goes through, that ultimately the the Mount Carmel thing is a crescendo at the end of the story, before it gets dark again. (laughs) We'll do that later too. Because Elijah has his down days also. So let's start here with the first step. This is kind of Elijah's, um, at least as far as what's recorded in the Bible, this is his first kind of public foray into ministry. 1 Kings 17, 1 through 7 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, that's the king, remember? The worst king. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So Elijah goes, confronts the king, which is dangerous by itself. And he declares that a drought is coming. And the drought's not going to stop until he says so. And it happens. 
It actually went on for three years, but it's not, God didn't set a three-year timetable. He set the timetable on when Israel would repent and when Baal was torn down. That's the timetable. It could have been longer. It could have been shorter. It could have not happened at all. But think about this for a minute. Imagine if the fruit of your ministry for three and a half years was a drought. And it's a drought that you have to live in. It's not like he prophesied a drought and then left the country and went to some place where it's rainy and gorgeous outside. He had to stay in the middle of that drought and just deal with it. And when we say drought, you need to picture no rain, nothing to eat, all the diseases that come along with a drought, that doesn't last for a week or a couple of weeks. Like here when we have a drought, what that means for us is you can't water your grass anymore. You have to turn your sprinklers off. Oh my, you know, my Bermuda grass is drying up and it's looking a little brown and crunchy out the front. Oh well, while you drink your iced tea, looking out your, your window, right? That's a drought here. This kind of drought he's talking about, people are dying. Children are dying. There's no food. The women can't produce milk for their babies because they can't drink any water or eat any food. All the livestock dies. Every source of life that you have in your world has disappeared, and there is nothing left for you. There is no hope. There's no life. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing you can do but sit there and starve. That's what we're talking about here. And Elijah is living in the middle of that. And what does God do? He says, look, go down to this brook, little creek, and I'm going to send ravens, and they're going to feed you. Now, that's pretty weird, but it's also pretty awesome. So Elijah sits by this creek. He drinks from this bubbling brook, and he lives there, probably in a little tent or shelter he makes. And every day, twice a day, a big black raven flies in, with a morsel of bread and meat for him. He has a little, you know, little dinner, little breakfast every day. This is how he lived through the drought. I would like to have that happen to me one time. Just to have a raven fly down and land and hand me a cheeseburger. I mean, how amazing is that, right? So this is Elijah's first time at bat, right? He prophesies a drought, the drought happens, and God feeds him by the brook. But what's going to happen next is, despite Elijah's faithfulness to do what God said, and despite the fact that God has fed him from ravens and from a brook, the brook dries up because we're in a drought. Eventually, the source of that little creek no longer has any water left. And it slowly, I mean, I just imagine how this would feel. You start out feeling like, feeling awesome. Look at this water flow. This is great. This is amazing. No one else knows about this. I'm just here. It's just here for me. It's God's provision for me. I'm just hanging. What a blessing this is. You're happy. And then every day you sort of notice a little less water coming down. And you think, oh, it's just, it's just, a, a, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's fine. I've got plenty. And then it gets smaller and smaller, and less, and less, 
until you're down to a little dirty mud puddle. And you're slurping out of the ground with grit and dirt in your mouth. And you're freaking out. What am I going to do? God, where'd you go? You ever feel that way? God, things were fine. You were taking care of me. I felt understood and seen and known. And all of a sudden, something happens and the brook dries up and I'm sucking moisture out of the mud. What happened? Where did you go? And God goes, I'm still here. I'll take care of you. And a lot, you never see Elijah curse God. He, you know, he has a problem later, but for now, let's be positive. Right? You don't see him do that. He just prays. God, what do I do? And God speaks to him, and he gives him more instructions. He says, go down to, this, to see this widow in Zarephath. This step in Elijah's training is that God sends Elijah down to this town, where he says, I commanded a widow there to feed you. I've already told a woman there to feed you. Now, that's pretty good news, but that's a little awkward. So he goes down to this town, and he finds this woman, and he asks her to give him some food, and she explains, I have nothing to spare. In fact, what she says is, I, I'm, I'm here gathering sticks, and I'm going to make a fire, and I'm going to cook the very last of my little bit of food, and it's going to feed me and my son, and then we're just going to lay down here and die because there's nothing left. Now, if it was me, I would feel really sorry for her, and I would immediately question what God had told me, and I would say, oh, then never mind. You go eat your last. I'll leave you in peace. But no, Elijah says, Chapter 17, verse 13, he says, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. And I can imagine she's like, Are you not listening? I don't have enough for you and me and my son. I just told you this. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Until the drought is over, you will have food. Now she's got a test. Elijah's just been tested. Will he say what God said, even though it risks her giving her last meal to him instead of her and her son? She passes the test. And now she's being tested. Imagine for a minute, moms, with all your motherly instincts, and you've got just a little bit of flour and oil left over to feed, to give you and your son just a few bites to live a couple of more days. And some loony prophet walks in and says, give all of that to me and just trust God that after you give that to me, when you look in that jar, it's going to be full. That's going to be hard to do, but she does it. She did what Elijah said, and they ate for days. They just apparently just sort of pigged out. Had sort of a Thanksgiving meal over a course of days. Just ate and ate and ate and ate. And she had that jar of flour and oil did not go dry until the drought was over, miraculously. So that's the second scene with Elijah, the second test for Elijah. So the third for his big day on Mount Carmel is even greater. 
and even harder and more difficult. The widow's son gets a disease and then dies. So they're eating, they're happy, they can't believe what God has done for them. Can't believe it. And then her son gets a disease and dies. Like, what, then what good was it? Right? Why, why did you do this miracle to feed us and then let my boy die? For her, it would feel a little bit like the brook drying up, right? God, you brought me here. You provided for me. You did a miracle for me. You showed me how faithful you are, how much you love me, how much you care. And then the thing, your, your provision just dried up. Same thing for this woman. God, you brought this prophet here who did this amazing thing. He, th- this miracle has happened. You've provided, you filled our bellies with food, and then you let my son die. Chapter 17, verse 18 says, And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Such a powerful response. She immediately assumes that her son has died because of her sin. And that the prophet is here just to remind her that it's all her fault. You ever respond to difficulty that way? Immediately think, ah, you don't blame God, you just blame yourself. Some people blame God, but there's also a tendency, I think, to go, well, it must be because God's mad at me. And there's some lesson I haven't learned. And he's just mad because I'm slow to learn. So he's crushing me and he's crushed my son because I'm too slow or too stubborn or too sinful. We know that's not at all what's happening. Verse 19, and he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? That's awesome! He's not happy. And he tells God about it. He feels the same way. Elijah is just like you and me. He says, what are you doing? God, you brought me here, and you gave me shelter, and then you're doing this? What are you doing? He's not happy. But his response to his unhappiness and to his questioning is not to get angry and bitter, it's to pray. Verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, I love the flatness of this statement. See, your son lives. I mean, I think he's probably blown away, but maybe I think he just, I'm just reading into things, okay? Maybe he's finally, he's like, okay, I I see how this is going to go. I see, I'm learning from God. God has taught me that he's faithful. 
see your sunrise. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So what can we learn from this? So if Elijah, remember, was just a human like the rest of us, how is it that he could do such amazing miracles? Doesn't that beg the question? Like if it's true, if James is right, then why am I not walking around raising the dead? Where are my ravens? Right? I'd like to, you know, eat a cheeseburger or grilled cheese or something from a raven. Let's have it. Where is it at? I see two things happening, two reasons from these stories. One, he had enough faith to obey God and act expectantly. And number two, he was a man of prayer. Those two simple things. So when God first told him to prophesy the drought, he must have doubted it at first. I mean, think about it. That's a pretty quickly, it's pretty quick and easy to discern if it's a true prophecy or not when you put yourself out on a limb like that. If you just, you say God's going to bring a drought, and then what happens if no drought comes? What happens if it starts raining as you're speaking? Which is what I would assume would happen to me. As I think, there will be a drought. starts raining. You look like a fool. You look like a raving lunatic and probably would have your head taken off because you're standing in front of the evilest king of all evil kings. Confronting the power center of that kingdom, which was Jezebel and Baal worship. James 5.17 tells us that Elijah prayed fervently that it would not rain. We don't see that in 1 Kings. We've got to trust James. So Elijah didn't just go prophesy and say what God said. He prayed fervently. I would say probably from the moment he received the word from God till it stopped raining. <laughs> That's my guess. If, it was, if, it, if he's any kind of normal person, then as soon as God said that to you, you go, oh man, what if it doesn't? God, please. Please. I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to say the thing. I'm going to do it. I'm on the way. God, please. When I say it, make it happen. And then after you prophesy it to King Ahab and walk away, as you're walking away, you're like, you're praying, you're praying, and you're praying. You're praying fervently because you put yourself out on a limb for God. This is what Elijah does. Prayer is both an act of faith itself as well as the right response to a lack of faith. It's both things. When you pray, you are, in the act itself, you are depending on God. You are saying, God, I am not the answer to this. I cannot make it stop raining. I don't have that power. I am not a superhero. I'm just a man. And and so you have to do it. So I'm praying and I'm asking you. And that itself is an act of faith. But it's also what you do when you don't have faith. When you don't believe. And you say to God, God, I don't. I got nothing. I'm worn thin. I got no belief. I got no zeal. I got no passion. I am dead and deflated and discouraged. And so what I do to that, with that lack of faith is I go to him and I pray. It's the same thing. But Elijah not only prays, but he also obeys with his actions and his words. He expects God to follow through. So he goes and he opens his mouth. 
And he says the thing. He, when God tells him to go to the brook, he goes to the brook. He believes there's one there when there's not one anywhere else. And he goes there and he trusts God. And when the brook dries up and God tells him to go to this weird town to see this weird lady who's going to feed him with nothing, he goes and he does it. And when he's faced with the possibility that he might be being selfish and take her last food, he says, no, God said. He takes action and he says and he does things expectantly. He was not dismayed by the widow's doubt and her hardship. Just like this, with the prophecy about the drought, he was willing to put his own reputation on the line as well as the well-being of the widow and her son in order to obey God's word to him. In each one of these tests, you see the demands on his faith were greater. So God didn't start it off with building an altar and asking fire to come from heaven. He didn't start him off with a dead person to raise. He started him off with, will you just say what I told you? That's all I'm asking you to do. Just go open your mouth and say the words and walk away. That's it. That was the first thing. And then his faith grew. He goes, okay. So when I say things that God tells me, he backs me up. Lesson learned. And see this progression. Faith grows by having it tested. I wish that wasn't true, to be honest. I wish we just got like some kind of magical deposit when we became a Christian of faith, and that was enough for life. But for some reason, God's really into testing things. And so what he does is he gives you a little tiny little bit of something, a little bit of willingness to obey him. And then he says, now go use that. Dude, I'll give you enough of a command to test that faith that you have. And when you go use it, it grows. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And it's how your faith grows. If you're wondering why you don't have any faith, well, just give it a minute. Something hard's going to happen. It's going to be tested. And that's how your faith grows. And it goes, boop, boop. And then each time it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Have you ever noticed that the stuff that used to throw you off of your track years ago don't anymore? That's how this works. You're growing. <laughs> you just didn't realize it. Because you're always in this state of being pushed and stretched. And so it always feels like you're over your head. And that's because you are. If you're walking with God, you're always a little bit over your head. That's how your faith grows. Our little faith gets challenged, and when we respond with prayer and obedience, it grows in strength for the next test. You see, the same test when the widow's son dies. If there was ever an opportunity for despair, this was it. And you can see Elijah, like Peter, just a little bit in his prayer. But he does the right thing with it, right? He doesn't leave in bitterness and anger. I can't believe God didn't back me up. It's only time God's ever not backed me up. I can't believe this. I've done the right thing. He told me to come here. I did what he told me to do. I said what he told me to say, and I am out of here. He doesn't do that. Instead, he takes that despair and frustration, and he brings it to God, and he prays. He says, God, what, have you brought me here to then not back me up? Will you raise him from the dead? Will you do the thing I can't imagine you doing in this place? Verse 17, 20 
through 22, he says, And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into again, him again. And verse 20 is what gets me. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Why would he do that? This is a God who can raise the dead. The death itself is like nothing for him. Why would he listen to us? If Elijah's a normal man, he's not special. You and I are normal people, normal human beings. Why would God, he listens to you. And he does things in response to your faith. That's incredible. So one thing I think we need to address here so we don't misapply this, which is the topic of faith and prayer, I think is often misunderstood. We tend to treat faith and prayer like God is like Santa Claus and he's there to give us stuff. And so we read a story like this and we do a weird translation into our life. And instead of it being like kingdom miracles to take down Baal, it's I need new shoes or whatever the thing is. I want more comfort in my life. I want more stuff. Or I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to be, ha- have this illness. I don't want to have this challenge in my life. I don't want this difficult thing. And we just make it about us. And then when God says no, we go, you've betrayed me, just like Elijah there in the tent with the dead son. You don't see Elijah doing that kind of thing here. Elijah's on a mission to demonstrate that Yahweh is the one true God, and Baal does not even exist, which is what we'll see happen at Mount Carmel. It's not just that Baal, I love it when people talk about, like Baal was not as strong as God. It's like, no, 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 Baal doesn't exist. That's what he's demonstrating. I can't get into next week. Try not to. Hang out right here. That's his mission. By the time we meet Elijah, he's already settled the issue concerning what his life is going to be about. It's not going to be about him. He spends the first three and a half years of his ministry living in a drought, being fed by ravens, which sounds awesome, but it actually doesn't sound awesome. It's dry and it's hot. And every meal he's wondering, is the raven going to come now? He exists to serve God and his faith is pointed in that direction, not at accumulating more comfort for his current life. Elijah starts by listening to what God says, not petitioning him for what he wants. It's not that God won't give you some stuff that makes your life better. It's that's not what your life is about. So the challenge here is will you serve God and do what he's called you to do even when it's dark and difficult? That's the challenge. It's not, will you sit and ask God to make your life more comfortable? God, no droughts for me, please. So we want the ravens to feed us. We want the miracles in the food multiplication. We want to raise the dead. We want those things to happen. What we don't want is our faith to be tested. We want our current level of faith to be enough for those things and to God to leave us alone and say, I'm done with you, you're finished. Enter into your rest. Well, that doesn't happen until you're dead. That moment will come for you if you're a Christian. But until then, your faith gets tested. You go from one test to another test. 
on each one. The test is, will you do what God said? Will you say what God said? Will you do the thing he's called you to do? Will you use your gifts? Will you follow the call? Will you lay your life down for the kingdom even when it's dark and it's difficult and it's hard and you don't feel like doing it? That's always the question. That's the test. If we can manage to see the difficulties in our lives through that lens, I think it transforms how we respond. It becomes You become focused on kind of sucking every last bit of faith growth out of your difficulty as you can instead of trying to get out of it as fast as you can. You start going, God, what? grow my faith. Expand my faith. I'm sitting here in the dry dirt and there's no water and there's no food and I feel as though you have left me here to die. God, expand my faith. Please. I want to be, make me a man of faith. Make me a man of prayer. Make me a woman of faith. Make me a woman of prayer. And I'm coming to you with my disappointment and my despair and my lack. And I'm saying, will you do something through me in this? I'm always amazed by my mother, who has been through some horribly dark days in hospitals. And she somehow manages to get the entire life story of everybody who's helping her, that comes in her room to do things for her, and talks about Jesus to them, and prays for them. And then when you go see mom, she'll tell you all these stories about all this nurse and that nurse and that doctor. Oh, he's from so-and-so, and he loves this, and he's got three kids, and blah, 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 blah. And there's this, even in the dark place where there's suffering and difficulty, there's a a drivenness to do what God has commanded even in that dark place. And that's Elijah. And the only way to get that faith is to pass that test over and over and over again. And so that's what I want to pray for this morning. That's where I'm challenged um, with the life of Elijah. Is that how he got to the Mount Carmel faith is through this kind of test. So why don't we stand together and Ask God for that. <clears throat> so God, we, God, everybody in this room is coming to you in a, from a different place. Some of us feel as though we're in a terrible drought. Some of us feel as though the only thing that's been produced from our life is difficulty. Some of us feel great. We feel fed and happy in you, and that's wonderful too. But God, all of us are the same in the sense that we need you to grow our faith. God, we live in a culture that is so broken and so far from you. We need faith to live in it. We need faith just to live our life. And we need even more faith to demonstrate the power of the gospel in this world. But I want to see miracles here, not just in this room, but through this church. 
I want to see this kind of power and influence. God, when the darkness comes against you, God, that we would be able to stand in that and demonstrate your power and your life that you are a living God, not a dead one. Because all of this is beyond us. Whether it's surviving a drought or confronting the idols in the world, God, all of it's beyond us, and we confess that we are just ordinary people. And what we need, God, is faithfulness, a willingness to obey even in the darkness. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to just come and visit us in our life. Would you work out our faith in us? Would you mold us into the people you've called us to be? God, I pray for those in a dark place, in a drought this morning, God, that you would focus them on what you've called them to do, how they are called to obey you in the hard place. God, that you would comfort them as they need comfort. And God, that you would strengthen their faith so that when they walk out the other end of the drought, God, that they would be stronger for it and more full of faith in you that God is faithful to me. He hears my prayers. He listens to me. When I speak, he hears me. He backs me up. He feeds me when I need feeding. He provides for me what I need. And he has given me a calling and a purpose and a word to speak. And I pray that you would place that faith in us right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen.